passage this morning is a single verse coming from Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read verse 11. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the reality that Jesus did not stay in the grave, but that he rose again. And that is our uh, celebration this morning, that the same spirit that rose him from the dead lives in us. God, help us to be humbled by that fact. I pray that you would speak through Pastor Jeff this morning and humble our hearts to listen to your word. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Pastor Brian, for reading that. Boy, that Romans 8, 11 verse, that's the whole ballgame right there. If the spirit of Jesus, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he will also bring to life your mortal bodies. So I welcome you to this uh, Easter service. Great to see your smiling faces. He is risen. Amen. Uh, If you have your Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 28. We'll mainly be in that passage today as well as some others, but we'll mainly be in Matthew chapter 28. Uh, Science fiction authors have come up with all kinds of imaginative ideas about how human beings might preserve or prolong their lives into the future. They've envisioned transferring our human consciousness to a server farm or the cloud, some computers, maybe even creating a clone of yourself in the future that you can download your consciousness to, or perhaps an android body that looks exactly the way you do now or maybe the way you would ideally like to look but never dies, never wears out. Or maybe it's some mythical fountain of youth that will give you eternal life if you drink its waters. And some have tried to make science fiction science fact. Elon Musk, for example, started Neuralink, a company exploring the interface between the human brain and robotics. Through medical breakthroughs and the uptick in the human living conditions, they envision that it's possible someday that we'll be able to meld technology and the human experience in the hopes that we'll just be able to sort of transition at our death into technology. Doesn't that sound like a hopeful future, Neuralink? That's what you want for your future? Awesome. But the sad reality is, no matter how much progress we make, no matter how much progress we we make or how much ingenuity or creativity we throw at it, We're all going to die. Welcome to church this morning. (laughs) And medical breakthroughs, things just keep getting better. Technology does just keep getting better. If you stop and think about it, you and I today, the average lifespan in the world, not just the U.S., the average lifespan in the world today is double what it was 150 years ago. Double. Whether it's film or literature or medical breakthroughs, all of it is merely an expression of the intuition that we have, our deepest intuitions. Somehow this idea of living forever is fundamentally and weirdly intelligible to us. There's something in us that not only longs for ongoing life, but for a quality of life. Somehow we know we were made for it. Somehow we know just in our knower that death is our enemy. But what is driving that desire? What is driving that intuition? 
Where does it come from? Why the need to imagine the promise of life forevermore? Well, the story of the Bible is just this, that God never intended for us to die. He designed us to enjoy fellowship with himself and his family in his kingdom forever. And human sin, disobedience to God's decree and his commands entered our picture. It entered our story. And it separated us forever from our God as an affront to his holiness. And with sin came death and corruption at every level of our human nature. And so the story that we read here today in Matthew chapter 28, it is the victory over all of that. It is God's victory, his triumph over death. We start in verse 1. This is after the Sabbath, uh, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. And there was a violent earthquake there, because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and he sat on it. And his appearance was dazzling, just like lightning. And his clothing was as white as snow. And this And the guards were so shaken by fear of him that they became like dead men. And the angel told the women, do not be afraid, because I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay, and then go quickly and tell the disciples, his disciples, he has risen from the dead, and indeed, he is going ahead of you to Galilee, and you will see him there. Listen, I've told you. So I want to make a few observations from the story today that will help us to understand our future, God's plan for our future. First thing you need to know, number one, is that Jesus' burial in that tomb signaled that the world was without hope and slave to fear. It signaled that all hope was lost. How so? Well, the king of Israel is crucified between two common brigands, two common thieves, His disciples have scattered to save their own lives. Only his closest family, Jesus' mother and his friends, watch in horror as his lifeless body is taken down off that cross. His friend, Joseph of Arimathea, who is a Pharisee, by the way, he comes and asks Pilate for Jesus' body and then buries Jesus in this borrowed family tomb. Now, the Pharisees remember what Jesus said. They heard his teaching, they remembered it, they remembered that he said, I'm going to die and the Son of Man is going to rise again. And so they go to Pilate and they say, listen, just in case this joker, right, just in case this guy tries to pull, his followers try to pull off a hoax, we we need to make sure this doesn't happen. And so Pilate said, well, take the guards then. Go and make it as secure as you know how. And they went and secured the tomb by setting a seal on the stone and placing the guards in front of it. Now, the seal was a waxy rope, a waxy cord. And what they would do is roll the stone in front of the opening, and then they would put this waxy rope around it and melt it so that the tomb was airless. The only way to get in was a little hole over the tomb, and sometimes women would come and throw spice alabaster jars in there, and they would break on the floor and and deal with the smell. And so here, the would-be Messiah, he's dead. He's buried. And so is the Christian faith. There is no Christian faith. There are no Christians because he's buried in a sealed, guarded tomb. Hear me well. 
The day Jesus died is the day all hope died. All hope in the world is extinguished right there. And what that tomb signifies, that tomb signifies that humanity is without hope. Because if Jesus stays a corpse in that grave, if he stays a corpse on that slab in that tomb, then evil empires get away with it. They remain unjust and cruel. Grieving mothers who watch their innocent children die in front of them have no recourse. They remain heartbroken and inconsolable. Disillusioned disciples who believed in him, they trusted in him. Now, they're filled with disbelief. They're stunned into silence and disbelief. The once optimistic crowds now turn in suspicion and mockery. This, this poor fellow, I mean, he saved others. Why couldn't he save himself? Luke 24, 6 fills in the picture a bit. The angel tells the women this. Remember what he said. Don't forget his teachings. The Pharisees remembered it. You, do, you remember it. That it was necessary for the Son of Man to be betrayed to sinful men, crucified, and rise on the third day. Why was it necessary? Why does the angel tell them it was necessary? The cross was necessary to demonstrate the full extent of God's love. How so? Because what it does is it puts on display us at our worst. Us at our worst. How far had we fallen? as a human race, to crucify one so innocent and to do so unjustly? How depraved have we, have we become that we would crucify God's spotless lamb? And so it puts on display our utter sinfulness, and it also puts on display the extent to which God is willing to go to redeem us. In our worst moment, God is at his best. In our worst moment, God does his best by giving his one and only son. It's also necessary, the cross was also necessary because on it, Jesus defeats the ultimate symbol of human shame and suffering and cruelty. Jesus defeats it. And he defeats it by hanging on this cross and taking the world's worst and giving us his best and taking the penalty that is due our sin before a holy God. But if he doesn't rise again, it doesn't matter. Ephesians 2.12, Paul writes to his Ephesian friends, and this is what he says. He says, at that time you were without Christ. Now remember, Ephesians, before you came to Christ, before you had faith in this cross, before you believed in his resurrection, at that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. If the tomb stays shut and sealed, and guarded, and Jesus doesn't come out of it, we are without God and without hope in the world. There is no hope in the world. If Jesus stays in the grave, the men die, and they will always die, and they will never come back. If he stays in that tomb, then nothing ever changes. Evil empires remain evil. Death reigns. Corruption is here to stay, and hopelessness is rampant. And we all remain captive to our fear of death. You see, the cross was meant to signify his defeat, and now it has become the eternal, universal symbol of his victory. And the tomb was meant to convey his demise, his utter destruction. Men go in the grave and they don't come back, but now we know they do, <laughs> because one did God's son. Number two. 
The resurrection of Jesus means we need not fear anything anymore. (laughs) So if we were held captive to our hopelessness, if we were without God and without hope, if we have every reason to fear in this world, what the resurrection signifies is this. We need not fear anything at all. That's why several times in this story you will hear this phrase, don't be afraid. Verse 5. The angel has to tell the women, do not be afraid, fear not, because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified, he's not here, (laughs) for he has risen. What is the basis of not having fear? What is it it based on? It's based on an empty tomb. It's based on the fact that Jesus Christ has come out of that grave. So let me ask you this morning, what are you afraid of? What's your greatest fear? Fear. What did you walk in with today? As many of you know, uh, back when my wife and I were um, battling cancer, a couple years ago, actually now, and uh, we went through about a year and a half of just her battling uh, cancer, and it was a lot of chemo, a lot of different kinds of treatment, and then it it took a while to actually recover from the surgery and the treatment. And so that just took a while, and that whole time, I can tell you firsthand, I can tell you, as the dad who was trying to take care of my little kids and trying to take care of my dying wife, you know, uh, I can tell you that I was terrified, totally. I was afraid. I was afraid every day. And most of you uh, who knew me back then, who were part of this church, um, would come up to me and say, wow, you you just seem like such a, a pillar of strength, and you had no idea. I was, I, was, I was in terror every day that I would lose this woman, the, the person that I love in this world the most. I love you, but I don't love you as much as her. I love her more than anyone in this world. And, and the prospect that I was going to lose this beautiful woman whose heart was full of kindness toward our children and toward our family and who filled our lives with just her care and her concern and her wonderful, quirky, funny sense of humor. She has a hilarious sense of humor. And the idea that I was just going to go through the rest of my life without her was just absolutely terrifying. It was terrifying. And no sooner did she get over her or deal with it, um, I was downstairs one day, and we had come through all the, all the treatment, all the surgery and everything, and then I heard it. I heard it for the first time in a long time. It was her singing. Because for about two years, I hadn't heard her sing at all. Now, if you know my wife, you would know this. My kids can vouch for this. She just kind of bursts into song in the house. She'll be in the kitchen, and she just bursts into a worship song. And sometimes my favorite songs are the ones I'm telling her right now are the ones that she just makes up. Like they're spiritual songs from the heart. And one day I was down in the basement. I can hear her from the kitchen. I can hear her voice just reverberating off the walls down the hall and down the stairs. And my heart was just full and, my, and I just broke into tears. I thought, oh, from death to life. And no sooner did she get over her ordeal than many of you know, I went through my own ordeal with cancer. I was diagnosed right after that, right on the heels of that experience with thyroid cancer. And uh, half of my thyroid had papillary carcinoma. And so I had half of it taken out. I wasn't so much afraid of the cancer as I was the surgery. Because in that surgery, there's a, a pretty large nerve there attached to your vocal cord. And if they clip that or if they hit that, it could cause you uh, not to be able to speak. I was terrified of that. 
Sure enough, I come out of the surgery, and uh, they did. They hit the nerve. They didn't cut it, thank God, but they hit it, and it paralyzed the left side of my vocal cord for the better part of three months, two or three months. And I can tell you, that was more terrifying than what she went through for me because I, I thought, how am I going to provide for my family? The thing which God has called me to do and gifted me to do and the thing that I enjoy so much, which is talking. I mean, I like to talk. I'm now not able to do it. I can no longer share with people the insights from God's word. I can't do that anymore. And I didn't know how I was going to provide for my family. And I, there were several of you, Pastor Daniel and others, who uh, sort of prophesied over me and just said, hey, man, I believe the Lord is leading me to tell you that you're going to get your voice back. And then the church gathered around uh, me one night and laid hands on me and prayed for me. And I'm telling you, uh, within a few weeks, my voice came back. And I was with my vocal therapist, and, and my vocal therapist said, hey, I think your voice is coming back. And I was like, praise God, man, from death to life. And I was afraid all the time that things were going to go down. Let me ask you, what are you afraid of today? Would you bring in that door with you? Is it the loss of your health? Not being able to do the things you used to be able to do because of some debilitating disease or the disease of getting old? Is it the loss of your loved one's health? Watching someone you love more than anything in this life wither, wither away. Watching a precious person slip away. Or maybe the loss of a marriage to divorce. You know your marriage is over and you came in this morning and you, you, you feel like you have no hope. It's done. Or the loss of a job or a career. Maybe you got uh, retired early. Whatever fear you have, this is the greatest fear you should have in your life, dying. Because whatever fear you walked in the door with, whatever fear you have, whatever loss you're worried about, listen, your ultimate enemy is death. Because when you die, if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, you stay dead. And worse than that, you and I are objects of God's wrath, according to Ephesians chapter 2. You and I are born into a condemned house. You and I are born into a condemned system. We are damned if Jesus has not died for our sins and risen from the dead. So apart from Christ, every fear that you walked in with, every fear that you harbor in your flesh, you're warranted to have. You're justified to have those fears. But watch what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2. He says, now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, that's us. Like we're fleshly, flesh and blood people. Well, Jesus also shared in these, that is to say he became incarnate. The word of God became fleshed or infleshed. And Jesus also shared in these so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. And so we, flesh and blood people who were afraid to die, who were afraid to face that last moment, Jesus has died in our place so that we don't have to. And you and I can now be freed from the tyranny of it. Amen? I hope you have that hope today. Number three, the resurrection of Jesus means that we live with fear and abundant joy. Oh, you don't have to fear. The command is fear not, but do you still? Look at verse 8. I love the humanity of this story. Watch this. So, departing quickly from the tomb, here's what the women do. They departed quickly from the tomb with fear 
and great joy. They ran to tell the disciples the news. And I love this picture. Because here they are. They, they clearly find that the tomb is empty. Jesus has risen from the dead. A heavenly angel, a heavenly messenger is sitting on the rock. And he gets down and he says, hey, don't be afraid. The tomb is empty. He is risen. Go. Don't be afraid. And then they haul off. They just haul away. They take off running down the road with fear. But they have something else too, joy. God has given them a joy, a resurrection joy that frankly is inexplicable. You can't explain it. Romans 15, 13 says this, now may the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe so that you may overflow with the hope with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at those words. Look at them. It's the God of all hope who is able to give you and I joy and peace. I can't manufacture it. I can't put on a happy smile. I can't slap a God sticker on it. I can't just say, hey, suck it up, buttercup. Pull yourself up here. No. I need the God of all hope to fill me, to deluge, to fill me with his presence, with joy and peace. And that infilling comes how? As you believe. It comes as you and I put our trust and our faith in the God-man who died on the cross for us. And we experience the infilling of the Holy Spirit that that is a joy that overflows, and we can't explain it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's the truth. It's perfectly natural for you and I to leave the scene, to look at the empty tomb, to see Jesus today in church clearly portrayed as crucified and risen from the dead and walk away kind of was still with some fear. <laughs> like to just say, I'm still worried about some stuff. I'm still worried about Carrie's cancer coming back. I am. At times, I still worry about myself. I worry about losing my loved ones. I worry about stuff. So do you. But God, where sin has abounded, grace does much more abound, doesn't it? And God has now met a standard. He's raised a standard for that fear and that anxiety in my life. And it's the joy of the Lord. It's the joy of the Holy Spirit. And so you can have that today. Number four, the resurrection requires a response. Look at verses 9 and 10 in Matthew 28. It says, just then Jesus met them and said, greetings. Don't you love that? What a great story. Jesus, they're hauling away. They're running down the road. Jesus appears in front of them and says, hey, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet, which means they have bowed down. They have hit the ground and they worshiped him. And then Jesus told them, do not fear. There it is again. Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee. Meet me in Galilee, and they will see me there. So when Jesus revealed himself to the women, their immediate response was the right one. It's worship. What is our response? They have seen him go in the grave. People don't come out of graves, but now he's here. <laughs> they, were, they saw his body wrapped. They saw that the that the tomb was sealed and guarded, and now they see him standing before them. Now, the angel of Jesus has told them, don't be afraid. Jesus has told them, don't be afraid, and they run. They run 
and tell the disciples all that has transpired. Luke chapter 24 picks up the story, fills in the blanks a little bit. They, the disciples, were talking about these things, so the women have told them. And notice how the disciples, like all men, don't know what to do, so they create a meeting to attend, right? So this is what, when guys don't know how to solve it, we don't know how to fix it, we just, we have a meeting, we talk about it. And so they're talking about these things, and then Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace, shalom, be with you. And they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a ghost, a spirit. And he said to them, why are you so troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, that it is in my feet, that it is me myself, that is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have standing before you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved, this is an unbelievable thing that is happening. They can't even wrap their heads around it. While they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? I'm hungry. And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Why is that so important? Because only a bodily resurrected Lord can sit there and eat breakfast with you. Now, they are just discombobulated. They're upended by this whole thing. It says they, they didn't believe, but they're filled with joy. Of course, they're filled with hope, but someone isn't there. Who's not there? Thomas. Poor Thomas. He gets the moniker, right? He gets the name for the rest of church history as Doubting Thomas. Because he comes back from paying the rent or getting groceries or whatever he was doing. He comes back and the disciples say to him, Hey, Thomas, uh, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's no longer in the grave. The tomb is empty. He appeared to the women. They came back and told us. And then Jesus appeared to us. And what is Thomas's response? Mm -mm. No. I don't believe that. In fact, he says, I would not believe that unless I put my hands in the scars unless I can touch his physical body. One week later, they're all, once again, they have a confab, they have a meeting. Jesus appears among them. And when he appears to them, he says, here I am, Thomas. Here I am. Now stop doubting and come believe. Touch my hands. Put your hand in my cloak and feel that scar that was lanced through with a spear. Feel it. And what is Thomas's response then? He does. He comes up to Jesus and he touches Jesus' hands and looks at his feet and sees the scars. And in John 20, 28, Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God, because this is the right response. This is the right response. The response that the resurrection requires of us today, calls us to today, is to believe on the one who hung on that cross and took our penalty for our sins. The one who went in that grave and has now come out of that grave victorious over sin, death, and hell. And I've got good news for you this morning. You might even want to write this down. This is pretty profound. You don't need to cry or freeze your head in the hope that technology will someday be able to revise you. You don't need a mythical fountain of youth you don't need a clone or an android body to house your consciousness in the future. You don't need any of that. All you need to do is trust in the risen Son of God because His promise to you is that in Christ you are going to rise too. That's all you need is the promise of eternal life. 
finish with this story. I got called from a friend years ago uh, when I was an associate pastor in uh, Spokane, Washington, and she called me frantically saying, can you come to the hospital right now? My grandpa has had a stroke, and they don't think he's going to live very much longer. So, man, I just got there. I got to that hospital, and when I came into the hospital, she met me in the corridor on his floor and gave me the whole story. He was a guy in his mid-80s. Uh, he was otherwise a picture of health, but one day, that day, he just stroked out. And so now he was paralyzed. He did not have any, he could not speak at all. In fact, the only use of his body that he had was he could squeeze your hand or he could blink. Can you imagine the terror of being trapped in your body like that? And here he was laying there. And I asked her, I said, um, is he a believer at all? Liz, is he a believer at all? And she said, oh, no. He was a good man, and he was a good grandpa, and he took care of, of us, but he was stubborn as a mule. He refused to believe in Jesus. He refused to ask for forgiveness. He refused to believe in God all his life. And now here he is hours away from passing into eternity. And I said, well, what do you want me to do, Liz? She said, I want you to tell him the gospel. I want you to explain it to him. I want you to lead him to Jesus. I said, okay. And so I go in, and when I walked in, they had already told him I was coming. And so when I came in, she said, uh, uh, Grandpa, this is Pastor Jeff. I told you about him. And when I walked through the little curtain there, everything he could move in his body, he just started moving. Like he started blinking and moving. And I was so heartbroken by that because I felt as if he were just reaching out to me to say, can you please, can you come and help me, come talk to me? And I was like, okay. So I walked over and I sat by his bed. I said, Harold, I don't have any hope for you today. I don't have any message of comfort for you other than this one. Jesus Christ of Nazareth died on a cross in the first century for your sins. And he paid the penalty that is due your sins and he went into a, a grave, and he defeated the grave by rising from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead. And then I began to unpack what all of that means. And then I told him, I said, listen, do, all you have to do is believe. Do you trust in this message? And you can have eternal life. Would you like for me to play, pray with you? And they had taught him to blink twice uh, for yes. And he blinked like four times. So I took that as a Yes. And I took his hand, and his hand was shaky and jittery and agitated. And the whole time I prayed for him, all I felt was just this tremendous fear. But then at the end of the prayer, as I led him in a confession of his sins before a holy God, as I led him in a confession that Jesus Christ died on the cross for his sins and rose on the third day to vindicate his claims to be Savior and Lord, as I led him in this prayer, I could feel the fear just like a cork, something unplugged, and it just drained out of him. And even though he couldn't speak, I could feel the joy of the Lord, the peace of God come over him, and his hand just kind of went soft, and he stopped being agitated. And I looked up, and his, his eyes were no longer filled with fear, the fear of death. They were filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you, that man got saved that day. And a few hours later, he passed into eternity. Because he had the hope of Christ. He had the hope of resurrection life. He had the hope of eternal life with Jesus when he died. So let me ask you, do you have the hope of the resurrection today? Do you know that when you pass from this life to the next, 
that you will be brought into the full rays of God's glory in his kingdom because of what Christ has done for you. Do you know that? And I want to encourage you today, if you do know that, if you do believe that, listen to these words. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, when Jesus returns, when Jesus comes back, this is what it's going to look like. The trumpet will sound, the trumpet of God will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed, for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and mortality with immortality. And when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and when the mortal uh, has been clothed with immortality, then the saying, then what is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law which condemns us rightly. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you have the victory today? Do you have a hope in Christ? Because if you don't, I want to implore you, come to Jesus today. Let's pray. And invite the worship team to come back up. Father in heaven, thank you for this sure word. Thank you for the encouragement that lifts faith in our hearts. And for those who do not know Christ and you're sitting here and you want to know Christ, you want this assurance, you want to have the assurance of resurrected life at the end of this age, an eternal life with Christ when you die. Will you make the good confession today? Will you believe in your heart that Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead to vindicate his claim, to validate his claim to be your Savior and your Lord? Will you believe that in your heart right now? And for those of you who are people of faith and you do hold to this good confession, let me encourage you this morning. Be encouraged by this. Whatever you brought in the door, whatever fear you harbor in your flesh, whatever terrifies you, Whatever keeps you up at night, do you understand you belong to God? Your life is hidden in Christ. And nothing, there's nothing in the world that can take or steal your joy, regardless of the fear. Because Christ has poured hope, Christ has poured peace and joy into your heart by the Holy Spirit. Would you just receive it this morning? And God, we thank you for, for this truth. And Lord, we confess that you are Savior. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.